Brothers and sisters, it is good to be here with you. Whether you're here in the gym or whether you're watching online, we have been gathered together because we know Jesus Christ. That is what brings us together. So it is good um, to be with you. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts together might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to start with a story about a church planter. This church planter moved to a new city, a good-sized city. This city was an important hub for commerce from all over the world, a place people passed through on their way from one destination to another, a place people came to try to get ahead in life, a place where there wasn't a lot of old money, but there sure were a lot of people scrambling for a place at the top of society, a place filled with opportunities and pitfalls, a multi-ethnic city where one could find a lot of different people from different places. The church planter gathered a team of four or five other Christians and started meeting people in the city. They spoke about Jesus, the true king, the one who was able to save the whole world, the true Lord. They spoke about this man chosen and anointed by God, a man who died for our sins, who was buried, who was raised on the third day, and who then appeared to his disciples and to so many others. And people believed. Some got baptized, some became leaders, some offered their homes as meeting places, some started telling their neighbors, in just a couple of years, a new church had been planted in this city. A number of small groups were meeting regularly in people's homes. And then the church planter decided it was time to move on. It was time to visit some other churches that he had founded previously and to see what was next. Now, not long after our church planter left the city, he got a message. Things hadn't really been going that great since he left. The church had split up into groups. Some are following one famous teacher. Some are devoted to another. Some are saying, we're sticking with the founder. And there's even one group that said, forget all those other teachers, we're with Jesus. As if the internal fighting over who has the best teacher hasn't caused enough division, the people who are part of the church are arguing about all kinds of other things, like marriage and singleness, sexuality, lawsuits, and rights. And they can't even agree on things like the right way to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the best worship practices, or the full truth and impact of the resurrection. It all started off with such promise this message of hope, of forgiveness, of a Lord who sacrificed himself for the benefit of the whole world. And now it has come down to this tangled mess of argument and division. 
And you don't have to squint super hard to see that this new little church actually looks a lot like the city it's part of. Similar squabbles, similar grasping after power, similar seeking for spiritual experiences, similar concerns with status and honor and position. Now, I don't know about you, but if I heard this report about a church that I had planted, I would be tempted in one of two directions. First, I might be tempted to send off a quick get-your-act-together email. Or second, I might be tempted to despair and throw in the towel. But our church planter, the Apostle Paul, does neither of these things. Instead, he pens a letter that's full of instruction, along with some rebuke, and over and over again, he reminds his church of what he had already taught them and what he had already demonstrated and lived in their presence. And then he helps them think about how that teaching applies to particular situations that are confronting this young church. All these arguments are causing divisions in the church, and Paul names this right at the beginning of the letter. He says, there are quarrels, strife, division among you. And the solution is right here at the beginning of the letter, too. I want all of you to agree, to be of the same mind and purpose. Now, I'm pretty sure that getting groups of Christians scattered around the city in Corinth to agree with each other was just as difficult as it is to get groups of Christians today to agree with each other. But Paul points the way forward, and this is what he says. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks de desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God's, God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. The very first thing that Paul orients this struggling church plant towards 
is the cross. And he is very clear with this church full of strivers, full of folks interested in position and in getting it right. He reminds the church that the meaning of the cross depends on where you are standing. You see, there are people who are in the process of perishing, and these people have written off the cross as foolishness. Really? A guy dying on a cross? What's that got to do with me and my problems and the realities of the world that I live in? But for those who are being saved, the message about the cross is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will summarize the message of the cross in the words, Christ died for our sins. You see, the power of the cross is not a superpower that enables Christians to rise through the ranks to the pinnacles of the church or to the pinnacles of the world. The power of the cross is the power to eradicate sin. And sin is a wily reality that comes in many different forms. Some forms we're all aware of. Idolatry, disrespecting and shaming others, lying, stealing, coveting, murdering. Other forms we have to be reminded of. Being self-protective because we're afraid. Excluding others out of fear. Presenting a false version of ourselves to others because we are seeking approval or because we want to keep up appearances. And so many others, the ways of sin are deep and wide. And in all its subtle ways, we see sin weaving its way into our lives. But for those who are being saved, the message of the cross is that Christ died for our sins. But the cross is about so much more than the power to eradicate sin. Anthony Thistleton says it's not less than that, but it's more than that. That alone would be stunning, but there's more. It brings together all sorts of people in one particular kind of way. These are the people who have recognized that they're perishing who know that sin is destroying them, and who know that they can do nothing about it in their own power. They have received the message about the cross, and the cross moves them from destruction to salvation, from perishing to life. And in the process, the cross is forming a new people, a people, us, those who are being saved, the church, all the people of God, all those responding to the message of the cross, all those taking hold of the gift of life through the cross. God has gathered us around, no longer Jew or Greek, no longer a whole host of ethnic divisions. I didn't ask that we sing in French, and yet here in the beginning of our chapel we affirm that we celebrate together in a multiple kinds of ways. 
the way in which the cross supersedes our ethnic divisions. There is the one group of people, the people who are gathered around God's foolishness, the crucified king. There's one group of people gathered around God's weakness, the cross. And what a way to deal with our human capacity to grasp power with a cross and a crucified king. In this way, Gordon Fee reminds us, God outsmarted his human creatures and thereby nullified their wisdom. In the same cross, God also overpowered his enemies with lavish grace and forgiveness and thereby divested them of their strength." End quote. And suddenly, so many of the sources of our sin are undone. Our need to have more, be more, look more, know more, no matter what we grasp, no matter how we abase ourselves with asceticism, no matter how many rules we keep, all our strength, all our wisdom, do not produce anything that is worth boasting about when we look up into the eyes of the crucified king. In the wisdom of the Greeks, a man like this, a man appointed by God as the true king of the world, should have risen to power and become enthroned, not in some backwater province like Judea, but in the halls of power in Rome itself. What kind of stupid message is it to say that the king of the world was crucified. According to the Greeks, true power showed itself, and that power was in Rome. It was in the place that had the power to put to death insurrectionists like Jesus, who threatened the Roman Empire. True power kept the peace with military might, if needed, and true power brought economic prosperity for those who had the capacity to wield it. Obviously, a dead king on a cross is foolishness, if you are a Greek. In the eyes of the Jews, God was supposed to vindicate his choosing of Israel with a great sign of deliverance. Maybe the Roman armies could just keel over and die in camp, the way the Assyrians were destroyed by the angel of the Lord. Now that would be a sign a sign of God's protection from suffering and a sign of God's continued choosing of Israel. Instead, we see a human named Jesus, a man who walks and talks and weeps, anointed by God as the true king, crucified. Now, if you're like me, you don't want to stop there. We want to move on to the resurrection, to the great vindication of Jesus' suffering and death. But notice... Paul doesn't move on. He lingers here at the cross, at the crucifixion. What is foolishness to the Greeks and scandal to the Jews is something quite different to those who have been called from all backgrounds and ethnicities. To the called, the cross is God's power and wisdom. Notice this. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is God's power and wisdom. Paul locates power and wisdom here in the cross. And that might lead us to ask, what kind of power is this? What kind of wisdom is this? See, God's foolishness is greater than human wisdom, and God's weakness is greater than human strength. In fact, Paul says, 
if you look around at the church, at the people who are called by God, you can see that God didn't start with strong, wise people. No, he began with the least and the lowly, with the poor and the ordinary. Not only is God's foolishness greater than humanity's wisdom, but God also chose the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. God chose the low and the despised. And in so doing, we might also be reminded that God started this project of redemption in a manger and that he finished this project of redemption on a cross. God chose the low and the despised things of this world to display his power. And what power is it? In these low and humble things, manger and cross, God brings about the spark of new creation. From the lowly and the humble, from the place of shame, God brings forth forgiveness of sin, triumph over evil, reconciliation. And God unmasks the wisdom of the world and displays the wisdom of God, a wisdom that points us towards the low and the humble. The temptation for us is to seek these things elsewhere, somewhere more glorious, somewhere more intelligent, somewhere more wise. But when we do that, in a way we abandon our king. See, our temptation over and over again is to live in our own wisdom, to live in our own strength, to think that we can get our act together in our own right. And we have the temptation over and over again to think that we can build the church, that we can build the kingdom of God, that we can create the space where God will live and God will dwell and where he will bless all our efforts and everything that we do. But that is the wisdom of the world creeping into the life of God's people. When we resist that temptation and keep our eyes on the cross, what we cannot fail to see is the humble life of our crucified king. This is the king who bent down a posture of lowliness and humility to wash the feet of his disciples. This is the king who looked up from a humble position below her at a woman caught in adultery and told her to go and sin no more. This is the king who bent down and stumbled under the awkward weight of the cross, a cross that Kosuki Koyama describes as having no handle for convenient carrying. When we keep our eyes on the crucified Lord, we recognize that all our efforts, all our wisdom, all our power is minuscule before God. God's foolishness is greater than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human power. Why does God display his power and wisdom in the cross? It's so that every human may realize that they have nothing to boast in. You may be the smartest, wisest, most intelligent person on this planet, but in the presence of the crucified king, it's nothing. You may be a church leader or a seminary president or a professor or hold some other position of esteem within the community of God's people, but even this is nothing to boast about. Instead, our only hope is in the person of Jesus Christ to whom we belong. 
When we find ourselves called by God, responding to that calling with faith, faith, and trusting that the cross is the way of both dealing with sin and living together as the new community, the community called into existence through the crucified Messiah, then we can begin to deal with the arguments and disputes that threaten to unravel the new creation community. Paul says, we preach the anointed king crucified. Take a second, close your eyes. Picture the cross, not an empty cross. A cross with the king nailed to it. The son of God, the king of the universe, and the cross. God chose the low things of this world so that none of us could boast. There's only one thing to boast about, and that is the Lord himself. The Lord's wisdom, the Lord's redemption, the Lord's righteousness. Indeed, boast in the Lord's foolishness. Boast in the Lord's weakness, because both those things are greater than our wisdom or our strength. Paul's young church plant was badly divided in speech and practice, but after naming the problem, Paul doesn't begin by telling them which group is right. He doesn't tell them to gather all their evidence and lay out all their proof, and he doesn't tell them to cut off whole groups from fellowship, and he doesn't begin with victory and the resurrection. Instead, he turns their focus to the crucified Lord, to the message he first preached to them. Not a sophisticated rhetorical message, but a trembling message about a crucified king who has the power to deal with sin and to call forth a new community. And he reminds his church plant that the cross is God's power and the cross is God's wisdom. My friends, we, those of us who have been gathered together as the church through faith in the crucified king, we are just as badly divided as Paul's little church in Corinth. And Paul's message is just as timely for us. God's foolishness, the cross, the crucified king, has the power to eradicate sin. But more than that, God's weakness, the cross, has the power to draw together people from every tribe and nation into a new kingdom people. And there at the cross is the opportunity to find unity. For there we see that everyone is perishing and needs a savior. We cannot, my friends, save ourselves. There we see that none of us has anything to boast about in our own right or in our own power. There we are shaped into the cruciform people of God and we learn how to lay down our rights and how to lay down the things that we think we deserve. There we learn to give up our disputes over so many things and instead to boast 
about what God has done for us in the cross. My invitation to you today, my friends, is that all of us together find our place around the cross. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.